good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 7 is where we're going to be today. We'll start in verse 7 and make our way through verse 13. To kind of give you a brief recap uh, on a couple of things that I think are really important for our understanding of this text, because we have arrived um, at another hypothetical or another question that Paul feels the need to both ask and then immediately answer. The question that he's asking today is, what then shall we say that the law is sin? Now, If you've been with us over the past couple of months, we've been walking through really starting in chapter six and making our way through to where we are today and really to find a conclusion next week as we bring chapter seven to a close. But as we consider everything that has been discussed over the past few months, it is important for us to reach all the way back again into chapter five. And the reason we must reach back there is because there were really two categories that are introduced in Romans chapter five. And the two categories are the law and the commandment. Now, the law here, I am convinced, is making reference to the Mosaic law. The commandment, I am convinced, is being made uh, specifically to the commandment that was given to Adam in the garden. And the reason I bring those two categories up is because right now, as we enter into this section in Romans seven, you're going to start to see them really intermingled. Um, As we've walked through this, it seems as though Paul has been dealing with first and foremost sin and ultimately the commandment. But then we go further and we see as we enter into chapter seven, that the law begins to take the front seat of his arguments. He wants us to see that the violation of the commandment leads to sin, but he also wants us to understand what the law is and what the law does. And brothers and sisters, I'm convinced that we have a really, really misunderstanding of what the law's intention is. The law is intended to do a great, great work in the hearts of people. However, due to our sinful state, the law really shouts over us one major profession. And as we'll see here in a moment, that major profession is you are dead. You have nothing in and of yourself. You have a great sin in you and the sin is sinful beyond measure. And so as we walk through this, it's important, brothers and sisters, that we understand that as Paul is making our way to this section, he's trying to make sure we understand that the law and and the law and sin are not the very same thing. They are dramatically distinct from one another, such as light is from darkness. And the reason we bring all of this up is because if we misunderstand the interaction between sin and the law, we may be found guilty of looking at the law and calling it wicked. And this can never be the case. And so with that, let us turn our attention to the scriptures. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. This is Romans chapter seven. We're gonna read verses seven through verse 14. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Romans chapter seven, starting in verse seven. What then shall we say that the law is sin by no means? Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. 
For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Let's pray together. Father, we come to a lofty passage. Lord, would you protect us this day as we walk through it? Lord, may you protect us from any of the errors that prompted Paul's questions. Lord, may we never say that the law is evil. May we always be reminded that the law is good and it is that us, we are sinful beyond measure. Father, would you remind us of these things, but Lord, would you also remind us of the one who is able to free us from both? And Lord, we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So a couple of things that I want to do as we approach the really verse seven, uh, I, I wanna ask a question because I don't wanna just blast through the question and just automatically mark it as, of course not, by no means, even though Paul certainly does here. I wanna kind of help us understand why we would get to the question, is the law sin? I mean, it's a dramatic question. I mean, consider even the mosaic mind as they're thinking through the covenant that God gave at Sinai. They're thinking through the law of God. This is something that is most cherished to them. And just to remind you, in Romans chapter two, Paul has already reminded the Jewish people that just because they have the law, that does not mean that they are righteous before God. It is only the one who keeps the law with perfection that is ultimately given the title of righteous and righteous altogether. And so as we come to this, he is working through this. And you can imagine the mind, the Jewish mind in particular, is thinking through this reality. And he's saying, he's already told me in the previous text that the law will not make me righteous, that there is no reason for me to boast because I have it. And then here, he's just essentially walked us through our need to be free from the law. So just to kind of give you two major things that we see from Romans chapter six and the introduction of Romans chapter seven, the, the similarities that we have between the law and sin. And there really are only two major similarities. The first is this, perhaps the question that would be rolling around in the mind of the people is, if I must die to it, then it must be evil. Now let's turn our attention back to Romans 6, 2. It says, how can we who die to sin still live in it? So the very first thing they think of as they're making their way into Romans 7, 4, where it says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to sin through the body of Christ. And so you can imagine, even as we're reading through this, I must die to both sin and the law. Now, I know with great certainty that sin is evil. I've watched it all the way from Genesis chapter three, destroy everything that it touches. I've watched it break relationships. I've watched it separate me from God. I know that sin is evil and wicked. And then Paul makes his way into Romans chapter seven after telling you that only through Jesus Christ can you be free from sin, you must die to it. And if you are in Christ this day, then you have died to it. And then he looks at you again and he says, and you must die to the law. Now you can imagine in the mind that perhaps it is you begin to correlate. Perhaps it is you begin to say, well, if I must die to sin and I must die to the law, then perhaps it is that they are of the same substance, that they are both, as it were, sin. Paul would look back and he would say, by no means. And perhaps another question that you might have is not just to be free from it, I must die. You can also see that it, both of these things have taken you captive. 
I mean, just pay very close attention to the scriptures. And I don't even mean just the book of Romans, but throughout the scriptures, you will see that sin has taken a soul captive. It has grabbed them. It has bound an individual to such a degree that there is no means of freedom from it. And I think one of the simplest ways to say this is that sin has bound us by corruption, meaning that sin has so impacted the human state of being that there is nothing that we can do that is free from sin. It has corrupted us in every faculty, meaning that from head to toe, even if we make our way back to Romans 3, when it talks about our lips and our tongues being sinful and wicked and goes all the way to the feet of the man and says, their feet are swift to shed blood, it shows us our depravity. Sin has captured us by corruption. It has bound our will to such a degree that there is not a single decision or task that we can do that is not riddled with sin. And so we see that it has us captive. But then we also see in passages like Galatians, Galatians 3, and in this particular passage that we are bound to the law as well. Bound to it, meaning that it has a rightful claim over us. How does the law of God then have a rightful claim over us? And is it the same bondage that we have in sin? And brothers and sisters, this is where we must quickly say, by no means. Sin has captured us via corruption, but the reality is that the law has bound us by the just judgments of God. The law looks over us and says, you therefore, a sinner, are bound to the just penalty of your sin. And brothers and sisters, if we can know anything about the law of God again, it is that he is faithful to execute it. The reason that we are bound to the law is because we have sinned and trespassed that law of God and God is faithful and just. And God will execute perfect justice in every single instance. And so we are indeed bound to the law. We have been corrupted by sin, but we are held captive by justice in regard to the law. These are the two similarities that they have, but I want you to see this, brothers and sisters. The similarities are actually polar opposites. They're polar opposites altogether. How can we who die to sin still live in it? How is it that we must die to sin? We must die to sin by our sin being paid for through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Only then can we be free from sin. How is it that we can be free from the law of God? Only when the law of God's penalty is perfectly paid in the finished work of Jesus Christ. The only means of freedom from both of these things is through the one righteous act of Christ. And can we stop for just a moment before we press on any further? To, to, to gasp, if you will, at the magnitude of the wisdom of God, that he would free you in one single righteous act from both sin and its corruption and simultaneously the law and its justice. No human court could dare fathom this. There is a reason that there is a great riddle in Exodus chapter 34 when it lays out the glorious attributes of God and it says that he forgives sin, trespass, and iniquity, but will by no means clear the guilty. The answer to the riddle has always been Christ and him crucified. This is the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God can save you both from the darkness of sin and the consequence of the light of the law in one fell swoop. And so we are, as we read through this, we can see there are certainly two similarities, but we must understand the similarities are only in their effect, certainly not in their substance. Certainly the law binds, sin binds. Certainly we must die to sin and ultimately the law. But praise be to God, we are free from both through the finished work of Jesus Christ. 
Now, we must get that out of the way before we begin to interact with the, the, the relationship, the interaction, if you will, between sin and the law, because that's really what we need to understand from this passage. We need to know how the law interacts with sin, and then we need to go a bit further and say, okay, how then does sin and the law interact with man? And this goes all the way back to the first man, Adam, to our immediate context today. Now, the very first thing that we must understand is the law interacts with me by pointing out sin in general. So let's pay very close attention to Romans 7, 7. It says, what then shall we say? The law is sin by no means yet. And I want you to pay a close attention to that yet because sometimes we think of that, uh, he's really making a counterpoint here. He's saying the law is opposite to sin rather than, instead of yet, maybe the better the better interpretation of that. Yet on the contrary, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. How does the law interact with me? The law teaches us of sin, brothers and sisters. It makes it clear, it makes it plain. It teaches us of its substance. And I want you to notice this because Paul, I think, really intentionally uses covetousness because it does not take a genius to understand that murder, the actually taking of a human life is not a good thing. Covetousness, on the other hand, lust, pride, desire is really the actual word here. And it's dealing with the evil desires of the heart. That ultimately needs to be pointed out to us because we would perhaps go on thinking that my covetousness, my secret evil desires that are within me are not ultimately sin. But brothers and sisters, Paul chooses covetousness to point out our first father's sin and also our own. It is not just the external sins that we commit. Paul is looking at the people and telling us that the law of God looks into your heart and says, see all of your evil desires laid bare, covetousness, desiring that which God has not providentially given you, lust, all of these simple evil desires that we speak of that never make its way out of our mouths or gives expression or animates our hands or feet are wicked to their core. He has laid out quite clearly the substance of sin, evil desires. And we will see later on, James picks this up for us. But it goes on to say, not just dealing with the substance, but I think if we understand the substance, it would go on to say in verse seven, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And so not only when the law interacts with us, does it tell us of the evil desires in our heart and call them sin. He's already told us that the wages of sin is death. He is essentially laying out to us the lasting effects and penalty of sin. And he's indicting you. He's indicting you. Because if we understand what it is to covet, the very next response is to say, I'm a coveter. I have evil desires in my heart. We must profess not only that we know the substance of sin, we must profess that we are sinners. And the law of God does this. It looks at us and it says, yes, this is sin. This is rebellion against God. And then it looks at us and finds every single human soul since Adam guilty guilty before God. I know what sin is, and now that I know what it is, I know that I am a great sinner. Now, this is the most base profession of the Christian. Do you know this? The reason that the gospel is so offensive is because the most base profession of the Christian is I am a sinner unable. I am a sinner that deserves wrath and fury. This is the basis of hearing the gospel and shouting, praise be to God, I have been redeemed. 
The reason that we see Christ so lovely is because we see the law and the covenant of works that we have been placed under since Adam's fall. We see it and we say that we are not able to bring about any fruitful righteousness. Instead, everything that I produce is of evil desires. And we say we need someone to redeem us. And if we could maybe have one overarching theme throughout all of Romans 7, is that the heart cry between at every point we discuss should be, who can save me from this body of death? Who can save me from my covetousness, from my evil desires? Who can save me? Because I know that I have rebelled. I know that my evil desires have given birth to something. And so holding that in mind, how does sin interact with us? It teaches us of our sin and it also teaches us that we are certainly sinners. Now, that leads us to another point that we must see from Romans 7, 8. How does then the law interact with sin? Or better yet, how does sin interact with the law? Let's pay attention to verse 8. It says this, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produces in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now, I want to be very careful with our language in Romans 7, 8. Don't misread what it's saying here. It says, but sin produces in me all kinds of covetousness. Now, we want to pay attention to that central uh, phrase that's seizing the opportunity through the commandments, but it is not the commandment that produces sin. It is not a, the commandment that produces covetousness. Instead, we must know that it is sin, and that is where we must turn our attention to first. First, I want us to notice the wickedness of sin. I, and I've tried over the last few weeks to be able to give you some definition to make sin as hideous as I possibly can. But brothers and sisters, it so fails. There is no description that I can give to make it as heinous as it actually is. It is rebellion against the holy God. And if that doesn't strike you to your core, then I don't know what illustration might. But here we see that sin is so wicked that it would take the commandment, the good and right and just commandments of God. If we jump down to verse 12, you will see the holy, the holy, righteous and good commandments and law of God. Sin looks at and then begins to corrupt in our own flesh. It hears the law, it hears the commandments and its immediate response is that I have a new way to wage war against the glory of God. I have a new way to rebel. It is almost as if it has given a new form of animation to our wickedness. It points out to us here, do not covet. All of a sudden, as we hear the language, do not covet, sin seizes the opportunity and begins to birth forth all kinds of covetousness. Children illustrate this to us rather effectively, don't they? The moment that we make some command, do not touch, do not taste, do not smell. And all of a sudden, the only thing on their mind is I need whatever I have been forbidden from. The natural state of man is so clearly laid out there. The law of God arouses or the a sin is aroused by the law of God and it seizes the opportunity and begins to birth forth. I love the language here, as tragic as it is, all kinds of covetousness. 1 John 2.16 says this, same language that he's using. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Here we see two types of covetousness, really perhaps better yet, three. There's sinful desires that erupt from within. And so we begin to hear that commandment, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not have evil desires. 
And immediately as we hear it, it's almost as though our evil desires are stirred and aroused that we might have all the more evil desires. Or perhaps it is that we would see good and perfect gifts from God and the desires of our eyes would quickly take us captive as well. Everything that we look at now is being corrupted by our sinful gaze. Instead of seeing it in the light that God has given it, we begin to corrupt and twist with our evil desires. It produces all kinds of covetousness. And again, brothers and sisters, we must know that it is not the law that does this. It is our sinful state of being. This is the magnitude of our corruption. As the law comes, our immediate response is, I have a new way to violate. I have a new way to trespass. Now, there is a rather unique phrase that we find here. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. And my goodness, if there be any text that has been so horrifically abused, it perhaps is this one. Because it would dare look at you and tell you that, of course, if there is no law, then you cannot sin. That is most certainly not the case. Turn your attention back to Romans 5.13. It's quite explicit. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Now past that, not only was sin in the world before the law was given, death was reigning in that time. Just because God has not explicitly said, thy shalt not, it does not mean that we all of a sudden have permission to or that all of a sudden it is not sin or trespass. It is quite clear from the scriptures that any sin that we commit against the character and nature of God is just that sin and its penalty is most certainly death. And so we can never say that sin is absent where there is no law. And we also must not say the law births sin. Brothers and sisters, the law of God is never pregnant with sin. But it is quite clear that we often are. And we must never make the mistake of reading through this verse and thinking to ourselves, ah, well, if the law has never come, then sin would never bear its consequence and it would never have taken hold of me. My goodness, if anything has demonstrated this, we would turn to our first father, Adam. In his perfectly righteous state, there certainly was one command that he could not commit. And I am largely convinced due to his imperfection that he was not immutable and unchangeable, that whether the commandment came or not, he could not maintain his own perfection. And so here we stand looking at this, and the law of God is very clearly stating here, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. And so we need to understand what this actually means. It means, as the previous text, looking back up to verse 5, it says, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law. It means that sin is ultimately aroused by the law. That when the law comes, our, our sin nature all of a sudden thinks to itself, I must take captive the opportunity. Now, I think John Bunyan illustrated this borderline perfectly in his book, Pilgrim's Progress. I'm sorry, I quote it all the time. Read it if you haven't. But in this glorious picture, he lays out Christian before this very dusty room. And you can't imagine just a dusty floor. Imagine that room that is filthy altogether, that if there be a breeze that blows through, all of a sudden there would be a dust storm. And then he goes in and he lays out what the law essentially does. The law walks in with the broom, no water, nothing to bed down all of that filth. And he begins to sweep. What happens when you sweep a dusty room? The dust is stirred. You begin perhaps coughing and sneezing. And as we think of this perhaps light picture of this, it is not so light because the dust that it sweeps up ultimately leads to death. It is a dusty, disturbed cloud of doom. When we see the law of God in this way, it comes in and it sweeps. We never hold the law of God at fault. We hold the dust at fault. 
It is the sin that makes the room so impalatable. It is the sin that is stirred up and aroused by the law that ultimately leads to our death. And so as we see this, we must understand that it is not sin, it is not the law that produces and that births forth sin. Instead, the law does, by God's grace, arouse sin. Perhaps it is that you think, how could you say that it's by God's grace? Because brothers and sisters, your death was coming whether he diagnosed it or not. Praise be to God that he was willing, that he was gracious to show us our own depravity and our own wickedness, that it might be a schoolmaster over us as we breathe in this dust of death to know that I will indeed die. Because it reminds us that we need a remedy. It reminds us that we need someone to come and to sweep this room in a better way. Now, In summary, sin interacts with the law by seeing and then seizing the opportunity so that it might multiply itself, so that it might give birth to all the more sinning. And then Paul leads us into what I am convinced to be a twofold illustration. Let's turn our attention to Romans 7, 9 through 11. It's really important that we understand this. And I'm going to lay it out in two ways. And I think the two ways are very clearly stated all the way back into Romans chapter 5 when he sets out Moses and Adam. He's laying out these two concepts so that we can understand really what is, bib- what is a biblical theology, what is a reality since Genesis chapter 3, and then what might take place in our own life as we aim to fulfill and perhaps earn the promise by our own works the very first thing we look at. So let's look at verse nine. It says, I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. Now, I perhaps have some perking ears that would hear this very first sentence and say, I once was alive apart from the law and would begin to ask the question, when was Paul alive apart from the law? And I would say at this very point, this, at this very point that not only was Paul once alive apart from the law, but every single one of us were once alive apart from the law. And if I could, I would drive us all the way back to our first father, Adam. We believe in a doctrine called federal headship. It means that we believe that God deals with us based upon our representative. In the case of Adam, our first father, we were dealt with as we were dealt with as he was dealt with. He was our first representative. And I could ask the rather simple question, was Adam ever alive in the garden? The answer is a resounding yes. Adam was alive in the garden. We see him living there, don't we, in those first two chapters of Genesis? We see him living, we see him flourishing, we see him walking with God. All of these things are his. He is given one specific commandment and from that moment forward, he begins to, or he ultimately will fall. But I want you to notice this. I think this is vitally important for us to understand. Previously, as we walk through passages like Romans 6, 17, and it lays out what I am convinced is this garden language over and over and over again. And then we see that same garden language birthed forth in Romans 9. I'm sorry, forgive me, in Romans 7, 9. I once was alive apart from the law. Brothers and sisters, Paul and every human soul was once alive apart from the law in Adam. Now let's just trace our first father's steps, shall we? Because as I would say with great confidence, I have died in Adam. I can say with great confidence that I was once alive in Adam based upon his own ability to keep the law and oh, how he failed. Let's look for just a moment. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Can we stand there for a moment with Adam at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Can we stand there and can we see the commandment laid out before him? A rather simple commandment, wasn't it? Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Certainly there were other commandments mentioned in there to go forth into the world, multiply, subdue it, ultimately conquer the world, be the image bearer of God all over creation. 
But here you see him standing in front of this one blessed commandment. And what occurs? What occurs, brothers and sisters? Let's just read through it. Who deceived him? Well, it says quite clearly in Genesis 3 that the serpent deceived him. But here, I think primarily what Adam is, or what Paul is referencing to us is that sin deceived him. It is not just the lips of the serpent that deceived Adam. Brothers and sisters, it was his own sin. He reached out and took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in that moment, all of humanity died in him. Certainly they were once alive with him, all based upon the covenant of works that says, do this and live. And as Adam reached out and took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he instantly fell and all of the human race fell with him. At this very moment, no longer can I say that I am alive. I must go back into Romans 5 and say, I'm dead in Adam. I'm dead in Adam. Sin seized the opportunity through the commandment. The commandment was good and right and holy and just. And instead of obeying, he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he fell. I can no longer say that I am alive. And if you notice going further on in this text, this is the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Can I point out something? If Adam would have not eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if he would have remained steadfast, if he would have fulfilled all of all righteousness there, then he would have remained in the garden. The promise is not a farce. He made it clear. He made it plain so that if you obey and you obey perfectly, life can be yours. He certainly promised life, but it proved death. Why? Not because the promise wasn't true, but because we had weakened it by our own flesh. God is faithful, brothers and sisters. There's no promise that he makes that we can call a lie. And certainly as Adam is in the garden and he's taking and eating of this fruit instantly, the promise would have melted in front of him because it was based upon his own law keeping. And instead of proving life, it proved death because he had sinned and rebelled against the holy God. Now, that is the biblical theology of it. That's why we are where we are. That's the reason that Paul can say, I once was alive apart from the law. But if I could, could I make it a bit personal for a moment? Because I want you to notice the language here. I do think that Paul has in his mind this biblical theology of federal headship of being in Adam. But I also think he has the moment of his own life to guide him here. Now, I want you to notice the mindset of the one who has thought about the law his whole life under the teaching of Gamaliel, hearing perhaps the best teaching, the best pharisaical teaching at best, about the law of God. What would he have heard? How do you think Paul would have seen the law of God throughout the majority of his life? Do you think he felt sinful for stoning Stephen? Because it doesn't seem as though he does. He sits there and I think, if anything, he perhaps is puffed up because he is the first to crush this blasphemy of Christ the Lord. And so as he hears this teaching and as he's understanding the law of God from a pharisaical standpoint, he would not look at the law and say, I'm dead. He would look at the law and say, I'm righteous. Now, if I could perhaps invade your own personal space for a moment, have you ever worked your way through the law of God and thought to yourself, man, I'm pretty good. I don't know about you, but that's pretty much how I understood the law of God up until the Spirit of God gave me light to see. I thought to myself, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm alive. I'm alive. I'm righteous. I'm good. I, I have not in any stretch of the imagination. I've never murdered. I've never committed adultery. I've never really had any idols. And at this point, I'm thinking about some crafted statue in my room. And I'm thinking about all of the sin that's laid out there. And I can say with the rich young ruler, oh no, I've done all those things. I've kept them from my youth. 
But when the law of God truly rushes upon the soul under the illumination of the Spirit, the very first cry is this, I once was alive apart from the law, but I am here dead. You see it, you understand it, you see your first father eating in the garden and you know that you died with him, but under the law of God and its illumination over your life, you see it and you say, I once was alive. I once thought I was righteous. I once thought I was good. And the law of God stares you face to face and it identifies you rightly. And it says, wretched man. But let's play this out for a moment, shall we? Let's just see how this would unfold before us. Because as it lays it out to us, it tells us that we could say, yes, certainly, I once was alive apart from the law, but we must know that that was only in perception. Perhaps it is that you believe that, but understand that it was never actually true. The, the wages of sin being death, being born in Adam, all of those are realities, whether you assent to them, is not, assent, assent to them or not. Just like Jesus is Lord, whether you believe that to be true or not. He's king regardless of your consent. You're dead in your trespasses and sin, regardless of whether you assent to it or not. And so we say, yes, I'm dead in the law. I'm dead because of sin. And so when the commandment came, as we would hear it and as we would understand it, when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Do you remember that moment when you actually understood the law of God for the first time? What was your reaction? Perhaps it was that you were like Bunyan as you read through the law of God and instantly you feel the weight of sin on your back. You know that you must be freed and you feel the death laying on you. That's what the law of God was intended to do. It was intended to point out to you your need of Christ, your need of redemption. And as it lays heavy on you, and our profession is, sin came alive and I died. Then it goes on. And it says, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Perhaps it is that you thought like I did, that the law of God was meant to tell me how great I was and then to tell me of the reward that I have merited by my own greatness. Perhaps it is that you thought that the promise was for you. Perhaps it is that you thought that by your white knuckling, it, by your law keeping, that you would merit all the promises of God. That the yes and amen isn't in Christ, but it's in you. And then you would look at it and you would say, oh no, no, if I understand this rightly, the promises are true, but they have proved to be death to me because I have weakened the law by my own flesh, by my sinfulness, by my rebellion against God. And so we must say with James 1, 14 through 15, that this is our state of being, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it, is, when it, when it is conceived, give birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, births forth death. There I am. There I am when I understand the law of God rightly. The law comes, God demands that I must not have any evil desires or wicked ways within me. And all of a sudden I see these evil and wicked ways within me and I say, oh, I must go on sinning. And then I taste that lasting fragrance of death because God is not a liar. The wages of sin is most certainly death. That would be a sad stopping point, wouldn't it? but it's not going to be. Let's point out a couple more things. What does this teach us about the law and sin? I'm going to move rapidly really through verses 12 and 13. The reason I want to move rapidly is I want to get to the conclusion of this that's really found in Romans 8. But it says this, first it teaches us of the holiness of the law and of the commandments. Just notice what verse 12 says. So the law was holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Brothers and sisters, was God in error to give the commandment to Adam even though that he knew that he was going to fall? Certainly not. Certainly not. Is God an error to lay the law of God over us because we are unable to keep it? Certainly not. 
As A.W. Pink once said, God has not lost his ability to command because we have lost our ability to obey. He is God and does what he pleases. And as he lays that out over us, we must say of the law that it is holy, that it is righteous, and that it is good. And as we look at it, that means that we are saying of the law of God, because I want you to hear your profession when you're saying, as Paul does here, that the, that the commandment and the law is holy and righteous and good. Essentially, what you're, what you're saying is the just penalty that's laid out by the law of God, which means my own death is holy and righteous and good. That's the profession that we make when we say that. When Paul's saying that here, he is essentially placing himself under the condemnation of the law. And he's saying, it's not the law that's wrong, it's me. I'm in error, I have sinned, I have trespassed, and anything that God brings me is ultimately just and good. And that perhaps is the most fearful thing that we will ever say, because the law of God brings to every sinner wrath and fury. Every one of us. When we read this and it says that it's holy and righteous and good, then we must say in verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? No, brothers and sisters, the law did not bring death to you. The law brought you the just consequence of your sin. It has brought to you only what is faithful and true and right. And as it comes, it condemns every human soul under it. And it does so exponentially. So I want you to see what it does because this interaction is ultimately captured so that we might understand who we actually are. It says this going forward in verse 13, by no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. You are never going to be in a position when you can stand before God and say, I did not know that I was a sinner. There will be no excuses on that day. Perhaps it is you would say, oh, I'm only responsible for what I have read. Well, Romans 2 disagrees. And ultimately, it's not the fact that the law has been given. It's that you have sinned against the holy nature of God because every law finds its anchor there in who he is. And if we have rebelled against it, then we most certainly deserve the recompense of our rebellion. But not only that, it tells us that there is most certainly sin in us. And as we look out, we can say with great confidence that I have sinned and rebelled against the holy God. And then he almost multiplies it for us. I want you to just notice the conclusion of verse 13. It says, and through the commandment. So the commandment came and sin seizing the opportunity through the commandment shows itself sinful beyond measure. Beyond measure. You know, I think of things that are beyond measure. Think of eternity as beyond measure. I think of the omnipotence of God as beyond measure. I think of his perfections, of his holiness, beyond measure. And we're essentially told that we're beyond measure in our sinfulness. And that's where we would ultimately land if we understand the law of God and sin. We would see our first father eating in the garden, and we would see that we were there too. And not only would we see that, we would see that in our own lives, as the law of God came, perhaps it is that we were the fools like the Pharisees that would look at it and say that they were righteous and good and they are to be the most among men to be pitied. Or perhaps it is the Spirit of God would give you life. And as the Spirit of God gave you life, you would look into the law of God and as you would look into it, you would see, I died. I died. I am dead in the trespasses and sins in which I once walked. But the beauty is, brothers and sisters, but it also tells us something of the law of God. It tells us of the inability of the law of God to clean. But hear me, that was never its intention. The law of God's intention was never to cleanse. Brooms don't do well in dusty rooms. You need something better. You need something far more powerful to cleanse. 
And the reason that we can find the conclusion of this, not in Romans 7, but ultimately in Romans 8, where we hear the Apostle Paul say something of this nature, wretched man that I am, can we all agree? Can we stand there with Paul and say, wretched man that I am? I certainly hope so, because that only leads us to the next phrase, who will deliver me from this body of death? Perhaps the best question of all of this blessed epistle, who can deliver me from this body of death? Who is it that can save me to the uttermost? And the answer is only thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Brothers and sisters, when we look here, we must understand that the law of God's intention is never, was never intended to clean you. It was intended to show you how dirty you actually were. It was there to magnify and to even reveal the depths of our sinfulness so that we might all the more deeply savor the glory of the gospel. Only when we see ourselves great sinners will we understand that Christ is a magnificent savior. And as we read through this, and as we see of our own sinful state, even our abuse of the law of God to maybe make it something that we could declare ourselves self-righteous by, when we then look to Jesus and not just Jesus, but the Father and the Son as well and rejoice because he cleans better than a broom. Let's see what it says. Just a couple of passages in Romans chapter eight, because what we ultimately see when we understand the law's inability is we begin to see all the more clearly the power of God in salvation. First, let us turn our attention to the blessed Son of God. Romans eight twenty four. wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I can be freed from this body of death. The sin shows me how dead I actually am. The law looks over it and says, the judgment is death. And Jesus looks back and says, they might be sinful beyond measure but I have grace eternal. Let's read another passage, perhaps. Romans chapter three, really clear and blessed statement. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Good news, we're all in good company of every human soul ever. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Praise be to God, he has sent the son to redeem us from the curse of the law. The reason that we can stand here today and say that I am not bound to law or sin is because Christ has freed us from both. But then we must not forget the father because brothers and sisters, what we ultimately see in passages like John three sixteen, that very simple passage that declares to us that the reason the son came is because the father was merciful and gracious and loving to a people unworthy. And then we see this in Romans 8, 3 through 4. For God has done with the law, hear this, weakened by the flesh. Again, the same refrain, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. The origin of this magnificent gospel is in the mind of the father to send the beloved son to redeem people who have unmerited it altogether. And then lastly, we see the means by which God applies. And I like to think that, brothers and sisters, this is the mop. This is the thing that finally hits the floor of the human soul to cleanse it and to make it a room that is clean and spotless and without blemish. Romans or Ephesians 5 is not a lie, brothers and sisters. When Jesus cleansed by the washing of water with the word, he actually does it. Hear what the word of God says in Romans 8, 9 through 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead, hear this language again, dead because of sin, 
That's, the, that's what we merited. That's what we have earned. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. That we are no longer dead in our trespasses and sins. Instead, the Spirit of God has made us alive by the application of Jesus' righteousness. And going forward, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through, the, through His Spirit who dwells in you. What a dynamic contrast between the law and the gospel. The law would look at you and say you're dead. It has no ability to give you life. It was never its intent. It was there as a death certificate to say that you deserve the wages of sin, which is death. Oh, but what a magnificent gospel that would look at us and cleanse us to the uttermost. What a magnificent gospel that would look at us and say, no longer dead in Adam, alive in Christ. If I could read perhaps one more verse that I think just summarizes this perfectly of the beauty of the washing by the Spirit of God. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9. It says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And if I could just add perhaps one more category there. Those who have evil desires all together. This list is not exhaustive, but the purpose is to lay out that every human soul was in this category. And then we have this blessed phrase that almost seems out of normal. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. There's a reason that Paul turns his attention from Romans 7 to Romans 8 and deals so heavily with the magnificent power of the spirit of God And the reason is this, because the law would come to clean and all it does is sweep up the dust and make clear how desperately you need the Spirit of God to come in with the blood of Christ and sanctify you to even up until your conscience. He cleanses to the uttermost, brothers and sisters. We come forth and we gladly profess, I am a sinner deserving wrath and fury. And then you can say, but I have been washed. I have been cleansed. I have been made whole. I have been justified. I have been sanctified because the gospel actually cleans the room. Let's pray together.